Chapter Thirteen of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter Thirteen. We increase and multiply. The following day, Chloe and Peter went off hand in hand to fetch Little John, as we had come to the conclusion that it was better not to let any of the members of Haggett's company know my address. Peter, very brushed looking appeared at the hen-coop to collect Chloe, a pink rosebud in his buttonhole. Also, obedient to my wish, he was wearing my watch, so that at any crisis he could rush straightway to a pawn-shop and deposit it, for as I had pointed out, it would be a great pity if a job came his way, and for lack of capital he could not seize upon it at the instant. The watch is lying against my heart, which is beating in time to its tick, he assured me. So I hope it doesn't gain, because it would be very sad if I were to become fast. It was always said of our set at Colorossi's, I remarked thoughtfully, that we were so charming because we were rapid without being fast. But as a matter of fact, that watch loses. I hope it doesn't follow that my heart will get lost said peter anxiously you don't think it would be safer if i handed it over to you in exchange for the watch i do not by the way he continued this rose is for you it's the pink flower of a blameless life my career has been described by a friend of mine as a blameless past capable of misconstructions i replied bending to sniff the rose your little nose is all over pollen, said Peter. Yes, that's why it's pink. Not your nose, but the rose, to match your past. It is not my past we should be considering now, but your future. Peter, do tell me while Chloe's getting ready. What is your idea? Oh, well, I suppose I'd better. It's very simple. Journalism. I have always understood that to be the refuge of the destitute. Peter, how exciting! But how about your other writing? That will have to wait. Poems and things don't make money. I did try very hard at popular fiction once. I began a newspaper feuilleton, but it wasn't a success, because I lost control of myself so. It started beautifully with the heroine drawing forth her watch warm from her waist, but when it pressed on to the villainess dropping her Mazawati-coloured eyes to the floor with a sickening thud, I had an idea it wouldn't do. And when the villain slank away like a whipped cream, I felt all was over between me. And so you broke it off? What was it called? Knight's Errant without the K. No one knew why, but it was. There was an archduchy in it, and an archduke, and all sorts of archpeople. There was an English cathedral charwoman with one blue eye and one brown, who was the head of a secret society. And there was a pure young English girl, and a muscular curate called Jack. And there was a man of the world with a past, and a rare smile, a bloated aristocrat, 
an iron-jawed financier, several murders and some aeroplanes. It was a sort of William Whiteley in the way of poetons. It must indeed have been strangely handsome. But Peter, tell me, how are you going to set about journalizing? Call at the offices, I suppose. It'll be pretty beastly. Would you like me to come too? Or I could do some of them for you. I might even get a job myself, which would keep me up here with you and Joe and Chloe. It's worth trying, anyway. How splendid if we could get on to the same paper, wouldn't it? Hello, here comes Miss Callender. What on earth is she doing? Chloe was holding the protesting elephant upside down on one arm, while with the other she tried to calm the creature's large hands that were splayed fiercely in protest. I'm practicing how to carry the baby, explained Chloe. I've never done such a thing in my life. Oh dear, I know I shall have no control over it. It, indeed, I exclaimed. Little John is a lady, if you please, and would never demean herself by carrying on like the Nelephant. Besides, you've got her on the wrong arm. On your left, Chloe, and take care to support her head. Here the Nelephant gave a scream of rage and clattered loudly from the room on her superfluous toenails. Chloe straightened her holland gown and drew some gloves over her scratches with an outraged expression. I trust I know one end of a baby from the other, she said loftily. Now, Mr. Whimperus, if you're ready, I am. And with an air as of people leading a forlorn hope, they departed. Joe and I spent the afternoon in making me some much-needed pyjamas out of an old silk background that was rather faded in places, but quite sound, and of a lovely peach-bloom color. We had no machine, and as we sat leaping up the seams, at Colorossi's one did everything by leaps, generally screaming leaps. One leapt screaming on to the tram-cars, one's brush leapt screaming over the canvas, etc. As we sat leaping up the seams hand over fist, we talked. It was the kind of talk you are supposed to indulge in when you are brushing your hair at night. Viv, I'm worried, began Joe. I want your help. My help? It's about Chloe, I suppose. Oh, of course. How do you think she seems? Prettier than ever, if that were possible and with still more of that look as though she'd just mislaid her halo and a pair of wings for a moment. Yes, but I don't mean her looks, I mean herself. Doesn't she strike you as being rather overstrung? No continuity. She always rather flitted from flower to flower, but I've noticed that it's more so and she has that expectant little look and way of humming to herself that she always has when she's more or less thinking herself in love. She's living on her nerves, said Joe, and this time it isn't a healthy excitement. Not that Chloe's to blame. She means no more harm than a butterfly, and sees none. 
but that very fact makes her reckless. A man, of course, of course, and he's got two wives already. My dear Joe. Well, he divorced the first one, and I should think by the way he's going on he wants the second one to divorce him. And I don't intend Chloe to be the excuse. Oh, it's unthinkable. Chloe, oh, how can he? Oh, I don't say he means any real harm. He's carried off his feet by her looks. Only, you know, men can have the best of intentions overridden by the worst of impulses. I'm so awfully afraid he'll lose his head. And then if Chloe's in a sympathetic or a reckless mood, what mightn't happen? He's coming to the dance? Yes, and the music and dancing and lights and things. You know what I mean. Chloe's susceptibility to atmosphere. Yes, I know. We must keep as much of an eye on her as we can. That won't be much. By the way, it's Morris Purvis, the painter. His thing was the splash at the New English last year. Oh, you were away. Yes, but I heard about it. And I've heard about him, too. Joe, what is there to be done? Well, I've got a plan for the dance, but it depends on you, Viv. Chloe's to be a masked folly, and her dress is copied from our old property one. The one with the ruff and the tulle skirts, you know. And I thought if we freshened that up, you could wear it. And masked, with your hair covered, no one would know which was which. Can you still imitate voices like you used? Yes. And, and so I thought if he, if he's going to be strenuous, I'm to manage it's to me and not to Chloe. Oh, Viv, it sounds awful. I feel a mean pig. I suppose I ought to let her take care of herself. You're only a kid, when all's said and done, though one forgets it when one isn't looking at you. But you know how absolutely mastered by her moods she is, while you always give the impression of having some steady, central point, however things ebb and flow round you. It isn't that Chloe would knowingly not play the game, but the emotions of the moment mean such a lot to her that she wouldn't let herself stop to think. Don't you worry about me. I'll do my best at the dance, Joe. We must wash and iron the rough next thing we do. Let's sort out the things now. We rummaged in the recesses of the property box, sorting skirts from tights, and finally brought together the component parts of the folly costume, all rather in need of a friendly iron and some attentions from a needle. Joe and I were busy supplying these when I heard on the cobbles of the courtyard the footsteps I had been eagerly awaiting. "'There they are! There they are!' I cried, jumping up from my cross-legged position on the floor. "'There's my little John. Now you shall see how peerless she is, Joe.' I ran to the stairs and scrambled down them in time to receive little John from Chloe's arms at the bottom. 
Chloe looked slightly flushed but triumphant, while most of Little John's face was obscured by the round black disc of a rubber comforter. Where did she get that? I demanded. I never allowed her to have such a thing. It's a frightful germ carrier and will spoil the shape of her mouth. Peter, you know I never allowed it. Be thankful it is what it is and not a gag or a bowstring, replied Chloe energetically as she led the way up the ladder. Oh, Viv, never has friendship been strained as ours has this day. Why? Did she cry? I asked absently. I had removed the comforter and was enthralled by the fact that Little John was too pleased to see me again for resentment. Her usually placid, not to say profoundly immobile countenance, was dimpled and puckered with smiles, and she gurgled dewily. Cry, repeated Chloe. Did she cry? No, she yelled, she howled, she shrieked. She outdid the trams, and the hoot of a motor paled before her. In the buses everyone looked at us as though we were murdering her, and one woman said, Poor little thing! Wonderful how they always know who's their friend. When it came to a policeman advancing towards us as we waited to change buses, I took a dive into the nearest likely shop and bought this and the only wonder is we didn't deposit little john under the counter and leave her there did it cry then my poor precious said i and now she behaves like a saint in a painted window observed peter disgustedly as though to make us out liars i suppose it was being rent from the changeling she resented if she went on like that when you left they must have been pleased to see the last of her at Haggett's. Oh, how was the poor changeling? Don't, said Peter. Why, I asked, startled. There's nothing wrong, is there? Oh, no, except that the changeling, having got fond for the first time in what can hardly be called her life, her existence, rather, of two other human creatures, has now lost them and feels lost herself. When she first saw us coming, she was sitting on the step of your old caravan with the infant on her lap. And when she caught sight of me, she thought the person with me must be you. She jumped up and ran past me to Miss Callender, and then her face went all dead suddenly, if you know what I mean. And then she must have guessed, heaven knows how, that we'd come for the kid, for she made a dash back to the caravan, stuck little John inside, slammed the door, and stood against it. I felt about as comfortable as a celluloid dog running after an asbestos cat across hell. Well, and then? Well, we were there to get the kid, and knew it was as much as our place was worth to come back without her. We got her. The changeling gave a sort of a howl and did a bolt somewhere. I found Haggett and asked him to comfort her a bit, give her jam for tea or something. It was rather like asking the dome of St. Paul's to be kind to one of the bits of mosaic. In silence I deposited Little John in the property cradle which I had prepared for her. Why, oh why, hadn't I a little money? 
then I would look after the changeling for ever and ever, and the changeling would look after little John, and we should all be happy. My joy in having my baby again, my anxiety about Chloe and thought of my own plans were all overridden by the mental vision Peter's account had conjured up. Still silently I helped to get the supper, while Peter and Chloe lay in opposite armchairs and took a well-earned rest. When we began the meal, the late evening sun was shining in at the little square-pane, deep-silled window looking into the yard. It shone on the pale purple plumes of a branch of wisteria in an earthenware jar, found out a corner of the polished walnut cradle, and gleamed round the edges of Chloe's little cinquecento head as she sat on the sill, giving her a prismatic halo and making her face and slim curved forward neck a delicate half-tone from which the blue of her shadowed eyes gained in depth. She was soon talking gaily, although I knew the serio-comic tragedy of the changeling had touched her quick imagination at the time. But whereas Peter, for instance, found no escape from the depression of seeing suffering, save in work or time, Chloe, in sheer self-defense, put all thought of it behind her as soon as she could. Jo was as admirably absorbed in Little John as even I could have wished, and sat where she could keep a watchful eye on that infant's once more placid and sleeping countenance. I talked of nothing and thought of the changeling. It was thus that we were all employed, with cocoa drinking as a common occupation, when there came the sound of a stealthy creeping on the ladder. We all started rather nervously, saving little John, who remained abstracted and unperturbed. Then Peter jumped up and, opening the door, went on to the landing and peered into the dimness. I followed him. There, nearly at the top of the ladder and crouched against it, was the changeling. Through the gloom her white, frightened wedge of a face gazed up at us like the face of someone rising for the last time in a flood. I gave Peter a gentle shove, and he disappeared quietly into the studio. Then I knelt down and stretched out my arms. It was a shock to see the changeling half flinch at my approach. I stroked back the stiff bleached hair, talking to her gently and very slowly in the way I had found she understood best, and for a few moments she stayed in her crouching position on the ladder. Then she came swiftly up and hurled herself at me, talking very fast and doubtless expressing much to herself, but as always with her, in moments of excitement, intelligible words there were none. I drew her to her feet and into the studio where Peter had told the others of the new turn in our affairs, and I found Jo ready with a cup of cocoa. The changeling marched straight over to the cradle, looked within, gave a little sigh of satisfaction, and came and sat beside me on the window-sill. All the time she drank her cocoa and devoured her bread and jam, 
she kept up a little stroking of my sleeve or skirt, until her meal over, with the abruptness characteristic of her, she was suddenly fast asleep, her head tipped back against the sill, and a smile on her half-opened mouth. My eyes met Joe's with a question in them, and she and I held a consultation in her bedroom, lest the disconcerting wits of the changeling should gain alertness with sleep. You can't turn her away, said Joe. No, of course I can't, but I can't plant her and little John and myself on you. I must find new quarters. Rats! We can squeeze her in here. There's the hayloft I'm allowed to use whenever I want it. She can have that. We'll fix her up a bed. Don't talk nonsense, Viv. What is worrying me is how she got here. I hope Peter or Chloe didn't give away your address at Haggett's, because if so, they may be after her. We didn't, said Peter from the doorway, against which he was reclining. She must have followed us, goodness knows how. Had she any money? I don't know. Oh, yes, she would have had nearly all that half-crown I left with Haggett for her. But even so, how she had the intelligence is what beats me. It's simply uncanny. Oh, Peter, the poor changeling. I'm glad, glad, glad she's come. As I spoke, I thought of the journey, accomplished much as a dog achieves across unknown country, those wonderful voyages of which one hears. I thought of the desperate, half-frightened cunning with which she must have crept on to buses after Peter and Chloe, always managing to keep out of their sight, until at last, after a long waiting, that must have been one of pure nervousness, in the yard or the storeroom at the bottom of the ladder, she had crept up to me. Late that night, as I lay in my impromptu bed in the little box-room, where all the old canvases were stacked, I felt very happy. I was certainly collecting a family in my course through life. There is a German fairy story which one meets in many slightly differing forms in the old books for children, which tells of a youth, generally the dullard of his family, who attains a magic goose with feathers of fine gold. Everyone who touches the goose, or who even touches the man who first laid finger on it, or those behind him, becomes helplessly stuck in a long procession. My progress through life seemed of much the same nature, though I think I must have been my own goose and certainly not a golden one. There would now be both the changeling and little John for Peter and me to support as well as ourselves, and the thought gave confidence. For as Peter had said to me in the courtyard that evening, as he went away, Providence might see fit to give one a bad time oneself, but would certainly never desert such helpless innocence as the changeling and little John. It's really a sort of selfish insuring of ourselves, said Peter. End of chapter 13